So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Um, but before we jump in, let me pray. Acts chapter 9, let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we can get together around your word and hear from you. I thank you that when we open your word, we don't hear from a preacher. We don't hear from a person, but we hear directly from the Holy Spirit. I thank you for that. It would be a tragedy, Lord, if we gathered together and all we did was hear from me. We need to hear from you this morning. So I do pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would come mightily this morning. That you would move mightily this morning. Not just in the hearts of those who know you, but in the hearts of those who may not know you right now. God, for those that don't know you, would you call them to faith? Would you call them to trust Christ this morning? And for those that do, Lord, I pray that you would call them to a deeper walk with you. Call them to the life that you have intended in which they would live. I acknowledge completely my my desperate need for your spirit to come and speak through me this morning. Would you please come? And right now, would you take a minute and just pray in your own heart that the Lord would come and and move and speak to you. Just take the next 10, 15, 20 seconds to pray specifically for that for yourself. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, my goal is to tell you the story of your life. I'm going to tell you exactly what is the story of your life. And every one of you are different. And so how in the world am I going to do that? (laughs) Um, Actually, what I'm going to tell you is the way God's intended your story to be. He's intended specifically as a believer for your life to look a certain way. And what I want to today is to show you what exactly he wants your life to look like. Even though you're all very different. And you're all in different stages of life. So you can say, who's this sermon for? This sermon is for the high school student who struggles to know his own, or his or her own identity. And as they interact with people around, they're, they're so nervous to let people know that they're a believer that they kind of retreat back and hang out in neutral ground. And, and all of you who have ever been in high school know this. If you're a believer, you're scared to death to let anybody know that you're different, that you actually care about Jesus. And you know that you're going to college in the next year or two, and you're, you have no idea how bold you're going to be there when you don't even have your parents. This, this sermon is for the college student, the single college student. Maybe you're a girl getting your bachelor's degree and also searching for your MRS degree, and you're wanting to one day be married, and you're dying for someone to come along and just um, be Prince Charming. And, and sweep you off your feet. And I'm saying this message is for you because that's not um, the role of, of him. He's not your savior. Jesus is your savior. And so this is for you as you're studying and wanting to know what's God's will for your life in the next stage. Um, or for the, those of you that are guys that are studying in school right now. And you're desperately wanting to figure out how in the world am I going to get a job as I finish? What's God's will for my life? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to show you that today from his scriptures. 
Um, for the single mom that stays home every day and takes care of kids and wipes noses and wipes behinds and wants to know how long this is going to keep going on, this is for you. You're wanting to know what is my life supposed to be? This is what your life's supposed to be. And it's all unique and it's all different because we all have certain seasons that we're in. And for those that are dads that are wanting to um, provide for their family and they've set up in one sense as they're in college and as they first got out of college and when you got married, great patterns for your life and for your family and those patterns are gone. You, you loved where you were spiritually as you led your family and maybe you're not there anymore. This is for you. And for those of you, wherever you are, if you don't know Christ, this is for you. This is for every single person in the room. And I just want you to hear it in that way. It's not for one person, but it's for every single person. Um, this is, I've entitled this sermon, The Life of a Christian. Whoever you are, wherever you are, this is your life right here. And we're going to see it especially because this is, as we look at this, we, if you've been in, in church life at all, you've heard of the Apostle Paul and you look at the Apostle Paul and you're like, that's not my life. That guy's like got Christian steroids or something, but I've never had a chance to get one, get one of those shots. And so um, I feel like I could never, ever live up to him. And I want to just walk through this stage by stage and let you see what's going on in his life and hopefully draw out some, some things and let you see that this is exactly who you are in Christ. This is exactly who you are. So let's look at, at verse 1, and we're going to kind of just walk through chapter 9. Uh, verse by verse for a while. But let's look at, at verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now we know Saul was just at the stoning of Stephen um, and was present and saying, Hey, can I hold all your coats while you go kill this man? And so we know this is a, a, a terrible man prior to Christ. Terrible, terrible man. And, and Luke, as he wrote Acts, is really wanting us to make sure we know, it says in, in 8.1, that Saul is approving of the execution of Stephen. He wants us to know that this man was a wretchedly horrible sinner. And what I want you to see is that we're no different. But this man had some unbelievable things he did for Christ, and we are no different. All right? And it says, and uh, he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if <clears throat> he found anyone belonging to the way that's following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So his job uh, as as a, someone before Jesus, before Jesus came and saved him was, my job is to go find as many Christians as I can and kill them. And then I want to I want to make sure I'm, I can I can do that as much as I possibly can. It says now when he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, I love this answer. Who are you, Lord? He answered himself in who are you? And so clearly he knows that this is something amazing going on. And then he said right here, I am Jesus. I looked this up in the Greek and it's the Ego Amy, the I am. And anytime Jesus is employing the Ego Amy, the I am, we all have to think he's pointing us back to Exodus 3.14 where Moses says, who shall I say send me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. That's my name. I am. And so we, we see this. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And so the first stage of this life and this, this new beginning of life for Paul here is, or Saul, it doesn't matter whichever one, is this radical conversion. That's the first thing. So if you're in Christ, this is the story of your life. If you have, no matter what age you got saved, the first thing that's ever happened in any of our lives is a radical conversion. The I am Jesus moment. 
You've had it and I've had it if you're in Christ. There's a time where he's come and this, he's, he's claimed what is rightfully his, what is rightfully his, namely your soul. And he said, I'm Jesus. It's time for you to commit living for me. So every single one of us have had this I am Jesus moment. And what happens is um, we read this and we say, well, I mean, I hadn't had it like this. He hasn't like shined a big light out of the out of the sky and and blinded me for a few days and said, stop persecuting me. And so we think since I haven't had this kind of radical conversion like Paul, our conversion is some kind of half-baked, kind of not so important thing like like Paul. He's the guy. He got to write half the New Testament. And so his radical conversion is so much more important than my radical conversion. I just want to submit to you this morning that that is absolutely not true. Your conversion to Christ is just as radical as Paul's. Just as radical. Um, this is why I say that. Colossians 1 says, just like Paul, you and I have crossed over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. He didn't have some kind of extra, extra crossing that we didn't have. Ephesians 2 says this, just like Paul, you and I have both been converted from being a devil worshiper to being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. There's no distinction between Paul's conversion and our conversion. Every single one of us have had a radical conversion. Whether you have lived a terrible life of sin or not, you don't have to say, well, I haven't really sinned a whole lot, so I need to go um, go out and build this radical, terrible testimony and do all these wretched things so when I come to Christ, I can just amaze everybody with my testimony. This is what happened. That's insane. Every single one of us has had an amazingly um, radical conversion in our life. And here's the thing. If you didn't have, I love this. One of my pastors um, in seminary said this. If you didn't have this special conversion where you had this horrible life of sin and then you gave your life to Jesus and he's radically changed you and you don't have that story, you have the story where, like I, I grew up whenever I was in, in, at eight and I got saved at eight and I've all, all I've ever known is, is Jesus and I've kind of lived my, my life for Christ. I'm, I'm a sinner, there's no doubt. But if you kind of had that, that young age conversion and you feel like, well, I haven't had this amazing conversion like these guys. He said this, when that's the case in your life and you're telling people about Jesus, that's awesome. That's even better because you don't, you don't really talk about yourself as much. You just talk more about Jesus. You get to talk more about Jesus and what he's done in your life and less about these radical changes that you've had. I think that's a great way to think about it. For those that were kind of grown up and say, well, my story is not really, you know, interesting. It is interesting. Talk more about Christ then because your life was a blessing that you got to grow up as a young believer. And Every single one of us have had this spectacular conversion. And I want you to look down at 15 for me because this is what's true of us all now. When we're in Christ, you can see mine's written in red where he says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. A chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. So if you're in Christ, you have all been radically converted. And what's true of you now is you are a chosen instrument of Jesus's to carry his name. That is absolutely stunning. It's stunning. So that's the first thing I wanted you to see. We have the exact same radical conversion that Paul had. Now, listen. What I'm wanting you to see as I'm walking through this chapter is, this is, as the Bible has has described for us, what seems to be the normative way a Christian should live. If your life isn't matching up to this, then I'm going to, at the end, beg for a response to, to, to ask the Lord to make this your life. But 
we've all kind of gone through this time where we have these times where we live for Jesus and then all of a sudden we don't and we've, we've been in this period so long that we don't even know how to dig out and it seems like, well, I guess this is the normal Christian life where I just kind of halfway do things, halfway committed or whatever. And I just want you to see that the biblical accounts don't show us that. Sure, all of them have their ups and downs, but as we're looking at this, there's some distinctions, there's some principles that are drawn out of this that are normative in the life of every Christian. And I want you to see those, and I want you to say, Lord, make those things true in my life. I want that to be normative in my life. Look at this. Um, verse 6, uh, verse 5, he had the I am Jesus moment, the radical conversion, and he tells Saul to rise and go into the city and... Um, You'll be told what, what to do. The men who were traveling with us, with, uh, Saul, were speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And here it is. For three days, um, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, um, not having sight is not necessarily a direct corollary with not eating. Just because you can't see doesn't mean you're not able to eat. So... There is an immediate three-day fast of Paul, an intentional abstaining from food in order to focus on what the world's just going on. I want, I want to really focus on Christ here. And then keep, let's keep going. Nine. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here, I'm, here I am, Lord. And he said, rise and go straight, go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, look at this. He is praying. Here's the second thing. Life of a Christian. Immediate devotion and focus on Jesus. Immediate devotion and focus on Jesus. Immediately. Brand new convert. Fasting three days. And when you find him, you're probably going to find him praying. This is normative in the Christian life. There are periods and there are moments and there are seasons. There are weeks or whatever in your life where you should have deep devotion, deep focus on fasting and prayer in your life. That can't always happen for every person. But th this is the normative, what it seems to be in our life, is that we would have times where we fast and we pray, where we are asking the Lord to be far more focused in our life. We can't find our lives to be so busy where we're not finding continual devotion to Jesus. I said in the very beginning of this year, one of the things we're going to focus on is communion with Christ. And we handed out Bible reading plans. And I, I think everybody was pretty gung-ho. We, 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 everybody took them out. And then probably by February, you're getting into Leviticus and you're like, oh, another law. I don't even understand these things. Or you're in the end of Exodus and they're describing all the details of how to build stuff. And you're like, oh man, this is so much. And I'm, how's the communion with Christ going? This is what's normative. Normative in the life of a Christian is devotion and focus on Jesus through fasting and prayer and, and through reading it through his word. So that's the second thing. Let's keep going. I want you to see this next part. This is this is pretty amazing. And in verse 12, and as <clears throat> and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I <laughs> I mean, this is just I love this. Lord, I have heard. Um, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who you call on him. So you can already see a little hesitation. Like, words got out. This guy kills people. And so Jesus says, hey, Ananias, you know that guy that kills everybody? I want you to go over to him. And he's like, wait a second here. He kills people. You're telling me to go? He's going to kill me. You're... That doesn't sound like a fun, fun, fun deal, Lord. I'm not really sure I want to do that. Um, 
And then this is the Lord reassures Ananias because you can understand the kind of hesitation in Ananias's heart. But he says, but the Lord said to him, go for here it is. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, as are you. Maybe not the same way as Saul, probably not the same way as Saul. But this is what's true of you if you're in Christ. Your life is now defined by the fact that you carry his name and you are to carry his name specifically to people so they, they will meet Jesus. That's the definition of your life. And then Ananias, of course, is a little bit nervous. And he said, he's, he's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. And this is, this is specific to Paul here in verse 16. Um, and he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And we can read it. You can go read it in Second Corinthians 11, where there's this big long list of all the sufferings that Paul has to go through. But this is specific to Paul. Jesus has called Paul out to carry his name and specifically to have a, a life of um, suffering for him. But what's what's sure here is that in verse 16, Jesus is going to say, I will show him. I will reveal to him right away. His will, Paul's will for my life. And so that's the third thing I want you to see here is that God's plans are revealed instantly to Saul. God's plans are instantly revealed to Saul. I don't want you to make this mistake. Just like Saul, there are plans for you that the Lord has laid out the moment you meet Jesus. And some of us are paralyzed searching for this, for the mysterious unicorn of God's will for my life. What is it? I don't know. I need to really stop. And I've seen in Christian's life where you are so paralyzed by trying to make sure you find this hidden unicorn of the mysterious God's will for your life. You become so indecisive that indecision becomes inhibiting. You don't do anything for Jesus because you don't want to mess up and make sure that you don't do the right thing. Let me just in a big blanket statement show you a couple things that are the Lord's will for your life. Here's two things. These are from two different texts. First is this. They won't be on the screen. Just You can just hear this. It's really simple. One's from First Thessalonians 4. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That, that's really simple. You can look all you want for the, for the Lord's will in your life, but here's in every single person, God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified, which just means that you would be more holy. You would pursue Christ, that you would do everything you can, arrange your entire life around pursuing being more holy and more Christ-like. So when you're searching for this mysterious will in your, God's, in, uh, in your life, <laughs> here's what's for sure. God wants you to pursue Him in holiness. Here's the second one. This is another one. And you can pull out as many as you want. I'm just trying to pull out two really simple ones. This is another one. This is from um, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. So as you're looking for this crazy will that you m- probably won't ever, this mysterious unicorn will, just... Know this, this is what the Lord wants, that you would be holy, that you would pursue Christ's likeness so wholeheartedly in your life. And as you're doing that, that you would go and make disciples. And I think, and I'm pretty positive, that if you're pursuing those two things, there's a lot of freedom in how you're pursuing this this will of God in your life. Should I go to that college? Should I go to this college? Should I do this? Listen, you don't have to ask those questions. I don't believe you have to ask those questions. I think if you're pursuing the will of God, or if you want to pursue the will of God, if you're pursuing holiness and sanctification, and you're trying to make disciples, and both of those things don't involve sin, pick whichever one you want. You're not going to pick the wrong one. If neither one of them are sinful, 
Pick the one you want. The Lord has given you a desire. Follow that desire. There's no wrong decision there. There really isn't. So you don't need to be paralyzed by trying to find this. Do what the God has made you most passionate about. Do you want to sell shoes in New York City? Go sell shoes in New York City. Do you want to be a farmer in Chester? Do it and do it for the glory of God and pursue holiness and make disciples while you're there. Whatever it is. If you're a city guy, then be a city guy. If you're a, if you're a country girl, be the country girl. Whatever it is that you want to do, pursue holiness and make disciples. The rest of it, if it doesn't involve sin, I and mean, it's just like, should I move in with my boyfriend or not? That one's easy. That's Don't choose sin. But if it's, should I go to that college or this college? Which one do you want to do? There's not sin there. But what the Lord does want you to do is pursue holiness and make disciples. And so there's no more wondering how he wants you to live because we see here God immediately, immediately, instantaneously reveals his will to us. And we know what those things are. Are you seeking his will? Do you care what his will is? What are you willing to do to follow it? Are you willing to risk whatever to follow it? Here's, Here's even more. Will it destroy you if you don't? Destroy meaning in the sense, I can't not do it because my burden is so huge to do it. Whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, then do it. And do it for His glory. And make sure that you're telling people it's for His glory. And pursue Christ's likeness while you're doing it. His will is instantly revealed to us. God's plans are instantly revealed. Verse 17 this is, this is so key. I, couldn't, I, I can't emphasize how key this is. It says this, So Ananias departed to enter the house, laying his hands on him. He said to Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may, I love this, regain your sight. Now, that's all Jesus told him to do. I want you to go lay your hands on him so he'll regain his sight. And Luke adds this extra phrase. So that you'll regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Luke add that extra phrase? I'm not sure. But we do see that that stands out. Jesus said, go lay your hands on him so he'll regain his sight. Ananias goes to him and said, Jesus sent me so I can lay my hands on you and regain your sight. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. That stands out as pretty important to me. Why the, why the narrative is written that way, I'm not sure we know. But one thing's for sure, it stands out. So here's the fourth one. This is what's normative in your life as a believer, that you have the power to be obedient. It's given to you. There's a filling and an absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit that happens in your life. Every single one of you are filled with the Holy Spirit whenever you get saved and are given a desire to be completely dependent upon him your entire life. This is so key. You must Have this if you're going to be obedient to the things of God. If you're going to live out, the moment you get saved, you are given the Holy Spirit. And the only way you're going to be obedient to the plans that he's laid out before you, the only way you're going to walk in holiness, the only way you're going to make disciples is if you have this power. And the promise is, when you get saved, you definitely have this power. You definitely have it. And here's the thing. I I, I was kind of talking about that radical conversion that Paul had, and we're kind of like second-class citizens compared to him. I want you to hear this. This is, this is so key. If you don't listen to anything else I say today, listen to this. You have the exact same Holy Spirit 
in your life right now that Paul did. You have no more or no less Holy Spirit than Paul did. That's pretty awesome. Because we think, usually I think, is like Paul is like part of the superheroes. Like he's going to be in that movie this coming summer about all the superheroes. He's part of that, but not me. I'm like, uh, I'm in the way that I get killed right like in the very first five minutes. I'm not even like. The thing is, is Paul has the exact same amount of Holy Spirit as you have. You have God himself living inside of you. So if that's the case, as I read the rest of the book of Acts and I see these amazing things that Paul does. I know that I have the power inside of me to make that kind of difference. Maybe I'm not going to write the New Testament. (laughs) That's pretty much closed. But the truth is that you have this exact same power. You need to realize this. This is so freeing. This is unbelievable to know that I can make that kind of difference. By the power of the Spirit. I can't do it without the Holy Spirit, but I have the same amount. Just a couple of verses just to talk about what some of these things that the Holy Spirit does. These are all from Romans 8. Romans 8 says, um, in 8.10, he says that the, the, Spirit, um, the Spirit tells us that He brings life to us. Romans 8.14 tells us that when we are led by the Spirit, we are absolutely sure, we are certain that we are sons or daughters. We all need that assurance every once in a while. The Holy Spirit assures you that you're a son or daughter. As a matter of fact, that's 8.14. 8.15 says, and he gives you a spirit within you to cry out, Abba, Father, that you have a something inside of you that says, Daddy, that's how close you are to him. Um, and if you are continually led by the Spirit, then you are continually certain of this assurance that you have in Christ. Uh, 8.26 says this. 8.26, the Holy Spirit tells us that the Spirit helps us when we are weak. The Spirit helps us when we are weak. Countless amounts of times in my life. And I think, I think that every one of you are going to be able to identify with this. This is what the Holy Spirit does for you. Countless amounts of times. When temptation comes my way and I have literally no strength within me to fight the temptation to sin. The Spirit intercedes and is literally the strength in me to keep me from desiring or completing or going into that sin. The Spirit helps me in my weakness. I have felt this multiple, multiple times. Hundreds, thousands, whenever a temptation comes and there's nothing within me to say, I don't want that. The Spirit comes and helps me. And if that's the case... 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, My grace is sufficient for, for you. This is Jesus talking to Paul. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Which means, if the Spirit helps me in my weakness, I want to be weak even more. Make me even more weak, because if I'm even more weak, then I'm even more dependent on the Holy Spirit. If I'm more dependent on the Holy Spirit, Paul's saying, then I'm even more stronger in the Spirit. So Lord, make me totally weak, so that I'm more strong in Jesus. That's what I want in my life. I don't want to ever be dependent upon myself. Ever. So what does real dependence upon the Holy Spirit look like in your life? What does real dependence upon the Holy Spirit look like in your life? What needs to change for it to be apparent, not just to others around you, but to you yourself, that you are absolutely dependent on Him? 
What does it look like for you to be weak? What does it look like for you to be weak so that he is strong? And then you can cry out, oh Lord, fill me and make me weak so that you are strong in me. That's what I want. And then it says in 18, immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized. Side note, baptism after faith. That's just a side note. And taking food, he was strengthened. Keep going. For some days, he was, um, he was with the disciples at Damascus. He was with the disciples at Damascus. So he's, he's healed, and for some days, he's in Damascus, and some of the disciples come. You can imagine they're a little bit leery, like Ananias as well. Like, this is the killer. I'm going to go meet the killer. I'm not really thinking that's a good idea. But they can see an immediate change in his life. And look at this. Watch this. Saul, who wanted to kill Christians immediately and and Mark's the immediate guy. Mark's the one that always says immediately, 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 immediately. Luke's not the immediate guy. So he's not the kind of the, the spastic immediate guy. And Luke is using and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. This is what's normative in the life of a Christian. Don't miss this. This is the fifth one. Instantly evangelism begins. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. The, the crazy thing is he was the one that was trying to kill all these people. And immediately he goes out and he's starting to try to make more of these people. Immediately evangelism happens. Instantly evangelism begins. There was something that was within Paul that clicked. And there was a deep love for his Savior that just took over him and emboldened him and constrained him, controlled him, that he had to go proclaim Jesus to people he didn't know. That's normative. That's normal in the Christian life. Is that defining you as a believer? There's something inside of me that is controlling me. There's something inside of me that's just clicked. I'm emboldened now. I must go make more converts. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them at least. I'm going to tell them. J.I. Packer says, evangelism is message delivered, not effect produced. That's God's work. God's the one who causes the salvation. Evangelism is message delivered. That's my job. Message delivered. Message delivered. God's work is effect produced. I want effect produced. I pray for effect produced. I'm going to do everything I can to tell them so that I see it. I, I would love to get to see it as I do it. But he goes and immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So here's what happened. Paul was a new convert and he's already telling people about Jesus. How long have you been a believer? You know, my favorite thing about new converts is that they don't know the rules yet. That's my favorite thing about new converts. They don't know the rules. Here's the rule. That when you've been a Christian for a while, you eventually become like the rest of them. And you never share your faith anymore. You notice that? Isn't that just a sad rule? When I say rule, I don't mean like a good one. It seems like that's the case though. What I love about new believers is that they don't understand that they just experience something and they have to let everybody know. And don't we all deeply want that? Instantly, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Most common excuse I hear is, I don't know what to say. I don't have any idea what to say. Here's what you say. Same thing he said. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. That's what you need to say. 
Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, let me explain it to you. I've got some really, really good news to tell you. Really good. You want the bad news or the good news? I've got good news. Which one you want? Bad news, you're a sinner. You're probably going to go to hell if you... Not probably. You are going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Good news, you don't have to. Someone has paid the penalty for you. You, you can pick however you want. All you need to talk about is what happened in your life. If you've believed and you've been saved, you don't need to go to training school to learn how to do, tell someone what happened to you. Jesus is the Son of God. That's what you need to say. What happens? And let me just say this one other thing. Um, well, let me show you what happens. What happens when, when you do that? What happens when evangelism immediately just kind of explodes out of your life? And it isn't supposed to just happen in that first t- seven days, 14 days when you're super excited about Jesus. But the normative thing, if you look at the rest of Paul, is he never stops. He never gets over the fact that Jesus came and died for him on the cross. May we never. Look what happens. And all who heard him were amazed. Now, they had reason to be amazed. He was killing Christians, and then all of a sudden he's trying to make more. So that's pretty, that is pretty amazing. But that's the first thing that happened. And then it says, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them about before the chief priests? Basically saying, wasn't wasn't he the guy that if no one's ever saying wasn't wasn't aren't you the guy or aren't you the girl that but now you're talking about Jesus I think that that should be something that maybe we should hear in our life if we have high levels of evangelism going on in our life and if we take one kind of broad step back this is another thing that happens The book of Acts is really, really, really striving to make sure we all hear this. And I'm just going to give you some verses. Acts 2, 47, 4, 4, 6, 7, 9, 31, 11, 24, 12, 24, 12, 47, 13, 48, 16, 5, 17, 19, on and on. This is what happens. When there's big groups of people that are believers gathered together and they start talking about Jesus, all those verses immediately let us know that the surrounding people that aren't Christians get converted. That's what's normal. Whenever there's groups of Christians together, like here, when we get together and we're collecting ourselves around the city, what's normal throughout the book of Acts is, and I know the Holy Spirit came, Pentecost, special deal. Same Holy Spirit today. But what seems to be normal is when Christians get together, it seems that the unbelievers in their life keep getting saved. And it keeps saying like multitudes, many were added, many were added, many got saved. That's, that's what the Bible says. And I just have to ask the question, well, why is that not happening now? We have a lot of Christians that gather together. This is what's normal. There's a lot of answers to that, which we don't have time. But perhaps we can strive to just say, when we get together with other believers, instantly evangelism should be flowing from our lips. That's what it says in verse 20. Keep going, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. He was He was brilliant. No doubt he was brilliant. He was raised in Judaism. And it says he lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He knew the Old Testament so well that as he just kept showing them with scripture after scripture, Jesus is the Messiah. He confounded him. He confounded him. That, t- that does take time for us all. Um, study and, and keep knowing Christ. But look at, let's look at 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Automatic, very, very <laughs> instant 
kind of fulfillment of of the prophecy that in verse 16 Jesus said, where he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In other words, he killed Christians, he's going to suffer automatically. Like just a few verses later, there it is. The prophecy of Jesus that this is going to happen in Paul's life starts happening automatically. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates at night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him out through the wall in a basket. So immediately, um, had to be a big basket, you would think, right? But um, immediately, persecution comes. Now, here's the thing. Um, persecution, here's the sixth one. And I'm not going to say this is definite. But here's the sixth thing that seems to be normative, especially as I read the scriptures. Persecution might come in your life. We've been reading through Matthew. Let me just read you the last thing, of the, the last Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others... We don't ever think of this whenever we get persecuted, but blessed are you when others revile you in persecution and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad when persecution comes, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think it's Psalm 116.15. Um, Precious in the sight are the deaths of my saints or my martyrs. Jesus has high regard for those who are persecuted for his name. The overall message of the Bible when persecution comes. And, and Philippians 1.29, by the way, says, if you're persecuted, it says it's a gift. It's not only been granted to you that you will have faith, but also that you will suffer for my name. It's, it's been granted to you that you'll suffer. Philippians 1.29. It's a gift that you get to participate in the sufferings of Christ as we fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, Colossians 1. Um, so the overall message of the Bible, though, when it comes to suffering, because we seem to like, that sounds terrible, that sounds awful, suffering hurts, and I don't want to participate in those kinds of things. The overall message of the Bible says that the whole scheme of things, suffering is really not that big a deal at all. Let me read you just two texts that say that. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. How can he say light and momentary whenever people are excruciatingly murdered and sometimes it lasts for a long time and sometimes we experience suffering for our entire lifetime? Because he says it's preparing for us an eternal weight. So when you compare our short amount of life we have in comparison to all eternity, when he says light and momentary, in our life it means heavy and horrible. But in comparison to all eternity, it's light and momentary. He says it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to, to the things that are unseen. That's where we look. For the things that are seen are transient or passing or going to fade away fast. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They go on forever. And in the same kind of way, in Romans 8, and almost they almost sound the exact same. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings, I love this, of this present time, which is probably going to happen if you pursue Christ for, with any strong measure whatsoever. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed to us. Any measure of suffering you experience now is nothing compared to the glory that not would be just be revealed to you. It's not like Jesus is saying, here's my glory, you get to see it. But we also have this thing called glorification where we get to have the glory given to in us. 
the glory that will be, that will be revealed in you. So therefore, suffer with him now, be glorified with him one day. That is amazing. So realizing that, it helps us when we kind of make the excuses in our mind that in certain, certain social situations, it's just not going to be appropriate to talk about Jesus because we might offend someone or they might say something mean to us or whatever. He died for us. And anything you receive is nothing compared to the eternal glory that will be revealed to you and in you. Now, we're going to conclude here with these last bit of verses in 28. Look at this, it says this. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. Paul said, hey guys, I'm on your team. Let me be a part of it. And they're like, wait a second. We know who you are. Not sure we want you. And it says this. They attempted to join, but they were all afraid of him. Right? We understand that. For they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, oh how we love Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. That's just, again, picking up what he did there in verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. We see him again preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. This is the normal way Christians should live. Every single one of you should be preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Preaching is just proclaimed. It's not just reserved for people that have a, have a, a music stand. It's for every single one of you. You should be proclaiming boldly the name of Jesus to people. What happens if that happens? And let's just acknowledge before we go into this, every single one of us really deeply desire this radical, on-fire life for God. If we're, if we're honest, if you're in Christ, every single one of you desire that. I don't think any of you would say, no, I don't want that. And not only that, we want everyone else to have that, that we know doesn't. This is what happens. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And the brothers learned this, and they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. He preached boldly, and look what happens. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. That's the first one. There's peace in the church. When we preach, there's peace in the church. may not be peace in the way you think, but this is a promise here. The second one. Not only did the church have peace, but look at this, and was being built up. When we preach Christ boldly, when we preach His name boldly, the church is built up. And it doesn't mean necessarily just the local church. It means the church universal. And what does it mean, built up? Well, I just gave you a ton of texts and acts where we know that that means numerically. There were a whole lot more numbers of people that were joining the church. So we can't just run away from the idea of numerical growth. No, I'm not talking about local church. I mean church universal. We want to see masses of numbers come in and come to Christ. So that's what we're talking about in one sense. Numerically, the church is being built up. When you and I preach Christ boldly, there should be a building up of the church universal. But also, not just numerically, but spiritually. When we preach Christ boldly, um, Tim Keller said that uh, sanctification is just a continual daily reorientation. Sanctification is just a continual daily reorientation back to your justification. In other words, 
Pursuing Christ's likeness, becoming more and more holy, is just reorienting yourself around the fact that that's already true. And that's what we're talking about here. As you preach Christ boldly, as you live for Him boldly, you are reminded of the fact that I am already in Christ. Nothing can take me away. The Holy Spirit's assured me that. I am in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has declared me holy. He's, I'm just as holy right now at my young age and, um, as I'm going to be when I'm 70. Jesus is just as happy with me right now at this particular young age as He's going to be with me at the close of my life. He's not, he's not more happy later. Sanctification is just a reorientation of back what's already been declared to you at the moment of faith. That's encouraging. And so the, the church gets built up. So when you preach Christ boldly to those who are in, in Christ in this church, they're going to be built up in their sanctification. Therefore, you should often preach the gospel to them. They're already Christians, but time and time again, as we see Paul's letters, Ephesians, um, Philippians, Colossians. He's writing to Christians and he wants to tell them about the gospel. Why? Because Christians need to hear the gospel over and over to be reminded who they are in Christ. So every single one of you should make it an intention to preach Christ boldly to those in your faith. They need to be reminded of who they are. But as we preach Christ boldly, we also see many people coming to know Christ. Here's the last thing that happens when you preach Christ boldly, when I preach Christ boldly. Here it is. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What happens when we preach Christ boldly? People walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplies. They walk in the fear of the Lord. They live for Him continually. And the comfort of the Spirit, they have the Holy Spirit guiding them and directing them in their life. In other words, when we preach Christ boldly, there is a pattern of overall lifestyle worship in the church holiness is pursued people are comforted by the spirit and people are hearing about christ i don't just want you to preach christ boldly in your life the church is desperately needing you to preach christ boldly Worship happens. The church is built up and there's peace. I said this at the beginning. This is what seems to be the normal pattern of our life. So let's just take a little step back and say, okay, I live in America in 2012 and I'm busy. How can I do those things? That's nice, Fud. Thanks for telling me about the superhero, Paul. But how am I going to do that? I got a test next week. I've got a sick kid. I've got to earn money to feed my family. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. As you're going through life, it's no accident where you are right now. Where you are is not a surprise to Jesus. He has you right where he wants you. And as you're going through life, the people that you're coming in contact with, he's just saying, Live with a little more intentionality. They're all around you right now. They're not off in magic, you know, unsaved island and everybody's got to go on a boat there. They're all around you. And he's saying, pursue sanctification right now and make disciples. Make disciples of your children if you're a stay-at-home mom. That's the season you're in. Make disciples of the people in your church. Make disciples of the people in your work 
if you're, if you're a businessman. Make disciples of the people in your class if you're pursuing a degree right now. Make disciples and pursue holiness. Sin and temptation is going to come. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. God, I cannot follow you without the Spirit. But as I'm asking for the filling of the Spirit, Lord, I want to pursue holiness. It's not your job to save the world. God's going to do that. Your job is to be obedient right now to say, God, the people around me right now that don't know Jesus, those are the people I want to see saved. And maybe he calls you to bigger things. Maybe he calls you to pack your family up and go overseas. Maybe he calls you to pack your family up and move out of the south. I don't know. Some of us will have this amazing life like Paul. But not everyone. But what's true is, you have had a radical conversion. You do have just as much Holy Spirit in your life. And he is absolutely calling you to holiness and to make disciples. Right now, here's the thing I want to ask. Will you let today be the day that it starts? Quit playing games. Quit making excuses and say, that's what's normal. That's what I'm going to do. It's going to be tough. But by the power of the Spirit, I'm ready to do it right now. This will be the day that I'm going to say, yes, that's what I'm doing. And I will, I will spill my guts for the rest of my life trying to make that happen. We're going to go into a time of worship. And this is our chance to respond to, to the way the Spirit is leading. And so maybe you just need to sit and think about some of these things and pray that some of these things would be true. And when you're ready, just stand and say, Jesus, I'm ready. And just worship him with all your life. Let's pray. Lord, we're desperate for your presence right now. I'm desperate for the conviction in my own life and in the life of this church whom you've given me (laughs) the privilege to be a pastor here. And I, I do pray, Lord, that you would use this body, this church, to do unbelievably amazing things in their lives. And would you use me in my life to do the same? We can get easily overwhelmed, Lord, when, especially when we read about these kinds of men. But Lord, keep us from that and keep us pursuing the depths of of Jesus that you're calling us to. Thank you for the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are not angry if our life has not been patterned after what seems to be here in Acts 9 right now. You're not angry. You're not angry with us. You're deeply in love with us and you are desperately wanting us to walk in your spirit and live out these things. You want it just as much as we want it and that's very reassuring. Be with us now as we respond. Be with us now as we worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.